Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And every week, the field of Democratic candidates running for president grows, and the slow burn of competition in First in the Nation, New Hampshire, continues to heat up. In that field, everyone wants to corner the market on ideas. One candidate who's been busy rolling out one big proposal after another is Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is our guest this morning. Senator, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adam. It's good to be here. So the latest big idea is breaking up the big tech companies, yep. uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Explain how they would change under okay. your plan. So first, Think how they work. So let's start with Amazon. It's an easy one to see. Uh, they run what's called a, a platform. That's where you may go to check out 46 coffee makers and who can deliver in the next 24 hours. That's the platform. And lots of sellers come to that platform. In fact, 49% of all online retail sales happen at Amazon. And just to give you a comparison, only about 8% of physical sales happen at Walmart. So that tells you how big Amazon is. So Amazon runs this platform. That's great. That's cool. But they have a second business. They collect information from every single transaction. They collect information on the buyer and they collect information on the seller. And then they look at those sellers and say, hmm, that one is starting to make big profits. They're doing really well. So we think what we'll do is they've got pet pillows going. We're gonna run Amazon pet pillows and we're gonna jump right in front of them. We'll push them back to page six on the search. We'll stay up in front and scoop up all the business that this other little tiny business spent all their time and effort developing. So here's what the breakup means. You can have the platform, think of this like baseball. You can be an umpire, that's great, or you can have a team in the game. But you can't both be an umpire and have a team in the game. So the breakup means for anybody, you'd still be able to go to Amazon to the platform, but Amazon wouldn't be getting a competitive advantage and driving a whole bunch of other little businesses out of business. What's the advantage to the consumer there? So the advantage to the consumer is it protects over time competition. You know, right now, there's actually less investing in venture capital going on in the zones around Amazon, Google, Facebook, and you know what they're called by investors? The kill zone. Because it means you've got a great new idea, you've got something fabulous you wanna get out there and try to sell or uh, develop. People don't wanna invest in you, the guys who understand how this works, because they say one of two things is gonna happen. Amazon, Google, Facebook will either just crush you and put you out of business or they'll just buy you up and absorb you. And that means competition doesn't work. See, here's the thing. I believe in markets. Markets create an enormous amount of value, but only when they're competitive markets, when they have rules to protect competition, and when you've got a cop on the beat to make sure those rules are enforced. Social media uh, played an unfortunate role in this attack in New Zealand. Uh, Facebook was streaming this live. To what extent uh, should a, a social media company uh, be responsible for what happens? Uh, certainly this is, they you don't know when these things are coming, but for the, the hate and the violence that end up being broadcast to the right. world. Well, for me, it starts with the fact that this is yet another demonstration of how powerful these tech companies have become. 
uh, and uh, in our lives, uh, how powerful they are economically, but also how powerful they are politically and socially, how much of the world they are beginning to change. And with that comes great responsibility. Um, I think that the time has come for uh, uh, putting much more responsibility on these tech companies for what's happening out in social media. This really worries me. But how do you do that, though, with the First Amendment? Obviously, the, the idea of liability versus the ability to, to speak exactly. freely. I'm a strong supporter of the First Amendment, absolutely. On the other hand, we all have known for a long time, Supreme Court has said, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right now, when social media is used uh, in ways like the despicable way that it has been used in this shooting uh, in Christchurch uh, and broadcast around the world, then we have a social media that's actually putting the rest of the world at risk. Uh, not only our Muslim population here in America and in other parts of the world, but others uh, who are drawn in by the violence. And that means there's real responsibility with these tech companies. On the subject of bigotry and racism, you've come out in support of reparations uh, for slavery to African Americans and also to indigenous communities. Can you provide specifics about what those reparations would entail and sort of what are you willing to spend on that? So. I'm open to reparations. Um, think of it this way. <clears throat> Our country was founded on principles of freedom, but also on the backs of slaves. And generation after generation after generation, our government has helped advance discrimination. In fact, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, into the 1960s, the federal government was subsidizing the purchase of homes for white people but discriminating against the purchase of homes for black people. It was called redlining, and that was federal law. The consequence of that gets felt from one generation to the next. You know, if your grandparents were able to buy a home, it makes a difference to your parents because the grandparents often were able to stay there, and if they died in the home, they pass on the wealth to the next generation. That helps that generation move up and get a home. That helps the next generation. We live in an America now where the median white family, for every hundred dollars that they have in wealth, the middle black family has about five dollars in wealth. And this is part of a long history that starts with slavery. I think it's time for America to confront that head on. There are a lot of different experts and activists who have been having this conversation for a long time about different ways that it could be constructed. I want to see a bigger national conversation about that. We have to acknowledge the fact that race matters in America. Deal with it head on and turn this into a better country. Another big policy concept that you're behind is universal child care. You want to pay through with that through a wealth tax. Taking a ste uh, step back from that a little bit, though, uh, the price tag for all of this. Yeah. Our national debt is up around $22 trillion. Do we have to worry about that at some point, that those debt payments are going to start to block out anything you want to do on a policy agenda? So look, I worried about this when the Republicans just about a year and a half ago pushed through a trillion and a half dollars in tax cuts for billionaires and giant corporations and the richest among us. And then we saw the national debt balloon again. Um, the wealth tax that I've proposed is a 2% tax 
on the richest 75,000 families in America. It's about one-tenth of one percent. And if we put a wealth tax on those families, it just says whatever you've got, you've got to pay 2% a year. And by the way, you own a home? I do. You're paying a wealth tax right now. It's just called property taxes. All I'm suggesting here is the property taxes for the ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy ought to include their Rembrandts and their diamonds. Because if they paid a property tax on that and put it back into the kitty, it would produce just short of three trillion dollars. Now that's money that we could use, for example, to pay for universal child care, to start rebuilding our infrastructure, to bring down student loan debt, and still have money left over to reduce the debt. I start with how to pay for this, and I also start with the basic principle of fairness. This year, the top one-tenth of one percent they're going to pay all in on taxes about 3.4% of their total wealth. That's what they'll pay. The 99.9% are going to pay about 7.4% of their total wealth. In other words, more than double. I think it's time that we stopped having freeloading billionaires and that they kick something back into the kitty so we can help rebuild America. You know, after all, after all, these folks built their great fortunes, or inherited them, in an America that we all help pay for the schools to educate those kids that became their employees. We all help pay for the roads and bridges that they use to get their goods to market. We all help pay for the firefighters and police officers that protected them, and we're glad to do that. We're Americans. We're glad to make that investment. All we're saying is, when you make it really, really big, Pitch a little something back in the kitty so the next kid gets a chance. One last thing on taxes. Sure. Safe to say that the longer it takes a candidate to release their tax returns, the more likely it is there's something suspicious in them? <laughs> I don't know about that. All I can say is I put 10 years of tax returns out on the Internet. It's been out there for a while now. And I also believe anybody running for federal office should do exactly the same thing. Uh, the American people have a right to know what your taxes look like, what kind of business dealings you've been up to. One more question sure. here, closer to home. If Bob Kraft is convicted of solicitation of prostitution, should the NFL come down hard on him and the Patriots to send a message about the seriousness of human trafficking? Uh, look, I was as shocked as anyone. Uh, but this is a moment when the NFL has to decide whether or not it is serious about the people who own the teams. Uh, as you know, they have uh, uh, not always stood up on the side of justice and instead have been very influenced by the money and position of those in power. Uh, but I am hopeful that the NFL will do the right thing here. Senator Warren, we thank you for your time. It's good to see you. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. So when Senator Cory Booker comes to the Granite State, he does not stay in local hotels. Why? 
He's reviving an old first-in-the-nation tradition of staying at the homes of the rank-and-file Democratic activists who could help make him the next president of the United States. Senator Booker joins us this morning. It's Thanks for being here. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Before we get uh, to the lighthearted stuff and where you're staying, let's talk about something very serious. This attack in New Zealand in Christchurch. 49 people dead, uh, a mosque, two mosques targeted. And it appears from some of the reporting that this shooter may have been inspired or uh, celebrated in some way American extremism. So my question is this. Does the next president of the United States need a tangible plan for combating hate, uh, not just in the U.S., but worldwide? And what does that mean? What would that mean to do? Well, the next president needs to be one that condemns hate. And we don't see that happening with the what we saw in Virginia with uh, failure to even speak strongly and unequivocally against uh, hatred and white supremacy. We've had in this country since 9-11, uh, I guess now we're up to about 80 terrorist attacks. The majority of them have been right-wing extremists. The majority of those have been white supremacists. And so we've got to get back to being a country that's united against hate and that does things to make sure uh, that we are keeping people safe from all kind of threats. And that's why common sense gun safety makes a lot of sense. And we know we've seen so many incidents in this country where those folks, if we had universal background checks, wouldn't qualify and closed loopholes wouldn't qualify for getting a weapon. There's things we can do to counter hate and to counter violence. When you were the mayor of Newark, certainly gun violence was not an abstraction. You had to deal with this on an almost daily basis, I'm guessing. In 2013, you referred to the gun debate uh, as tiring. Uh, what did you mean by that? And is that still reflect your view? Well, I say tiring because why are we having a debate over things that over 90% of Americans agree on? 86% of NRA members agree that we should have universal background check, that it's absurd that someone who has terroristic beliefs, literally in over, overseas there's been terrorist organizations who've been using our lax gun laws as training, telling people, hey, go to America, you can go to a gun show, don't have to show ID, load up with a trunk full of weapons and go do unspeakable carnage. That, that has to stop. Internet sales, loopholes at gun shows, these things have to be closed. Most gun owners agree with that. Most gun owners don't mind sensible gun safety to make sure that people who should never, ever be able to put their hands on a gun uh, can't get one. And, and that's what's tiring, is not doing the things we agree on. And Second Amendment activists often point out that criminals don't obey laws. And so gun laws often, they just breeze right past them, if you will. And as a mayor, you know, illegal guns are a problem in any city. So to what extent, though, should we be focusing on enforcing the existing laws that we already have? Well, there's two things. First of all, we know from the NICS systems, the background check system, they stop people uh, very often by having a background check, by having laws there. Uh, we know that closing the gun show loopholes and having common sense gun safety. Actually, we've seen this for states that have a, a comprehensive background checks. Assaults against women with guns go down over 40%. So so you can't say that these laws don't make a difference and doing the common sense things that most Americans, even gun owners, agree on. We've got to do those things. And then there's other things that we can do uh, to make people safer in America. And we've got to start saying that, look, safety and security is one of the reasons why governments are formed in the first place. And let's unify around this idea of helping to lower crime. This is why I'm such a big person for criminal justice reform, because we have a criminal justice system in many ways that makes us less safe in America. Let's use a simple example of marijuana laws in this country, which are profoundly unequal. Uh, we had more marijuana arrests in 2017, marijuana possession arrests, than all violent crime arrests combined. So we have our police running after people 
uh, to arrest them for things that two of the last three presidents did. Heck, presidential candidates now are openly admitting they use marijuana, but we're still seeing kids getting locked up. And the reason why that makes us more dangerous is because you see that low-income kids, more than kids of privilege, are often getting the ones getting arrested. Disproportionately, actually, black and brown kids, there's no difference between blacks and whites for using marijuana, but blacks are about four times more likely to be caught for it. So now that kid comes back, with a criminal conviction, they can't get a job, they can't get a loan from your bank, they can't get public housing. There's tens of thousands of collateral consequences that shut off opportunity to those kids. And often they make the bad decision. They can't get a job, they end up going back further into lives of crime or in the drug world. We've gotta do things that's about restorative justice and empowering people to succeed, having a criminal justice system that reflects our values and gets the outcomes that we really need. How do you balance the altruism of criminal justice reform with the reality that there are hardened criminals out there who will take every advantage to continue harming people and accruing wealth to themselves by ill-gotten means. Well, this is the, the misperception that we have in this country that somehow the majority of people we lock up are these hardened criminals. The majority of people we lock up, as I said, remember, more marijuana possession arrests than all violent crime combined. So let's agree that violent criminals and, 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 and people that are hardened criminals should be in, in, in jail for a long time. What about for the majority of people who are committing nonviolent crimes, often as a result of this broken drug war, and we are treating things like drug addiction with prison. We're treating things like mental illness with prison. In fact, the biggest mental health care facilities we have that aren't giving health care is American prisons, which is just locking up people disproportionately who need health care and not more harm that's compounded by prison. We have a criminal justice that makes us less safe by dealing with vulnerable populations who are hurting and need help by, by prison, which is so much more expensive. Let me give you an example. Seattle, Washington did a simple study. What's more expensive? Leaving mentally ill homeless people on the streets or putting them in supportive housing? They found out just analyzing about 23 people that they save taxpayers over a million dollars by putting them in supportive housing because they end up in our jails and our hospital emergency room. Florida did a similar study. They were spending three times taxpayer monies on law enforcement, taking going after mentally ill people as opposed to the much cheaper way to do it is to give people a caseworker and health care. We are a seem to be a society now much more comfortable to pay so much more money on the back end of a problem as opposed to investing in smart interventions that would actually make us safer and reflect our values and be far more humane. On health care, you're a supporter of Medicare for all. What does it tell you that the states, the states that have looked at a big picture idea on health care, like Vermont and California, have done so and then backed away? Well, look, you have, you have states like Massachusetts that have open access to everyone in their state. This is not something we can't do. We have the capacity to have a nation where everyone has access to health care. Everyone. Now, there's many different ways to get there. That's why I'm on a number of Senate bills. I believe in Medicare for all as a way to provide that. But let's just start with common sense. Come on. We know as a nation that if we do things like, hey, lower Medicare eligibility, maybe we can't make Medicare for all in our first step, let's lower it down to 55. It would take a lot of older people out of private insurance markets. And guess what would happen to those private insurance markets? The cost would go down. We'd see people's cost of health care go down. There are common sense things we can do to it. Massively expand access to health care, lower costs, because right now we shouldn't be satisfied to have the most expensive health care system in the country, in the globe, and have the worst outcomes for developed nations that's costing us nearly 20% of our GDP. This is not a good way to do it. It's more expensive to do nothing than to find common sense solutions that expand health care uh, for all people. Circling back to what we talked about in the intro, 
intro, you've been staying in the homes uh, of grassroots New Hampshire folks here. What have you learned so far from getting out of the Motel 6 lane and, and into the, the bedrooms, uh, the spare bedrooms of folks here in New Hampshire? This is a great state. It really is. Folks here take their first in the nation status really seriously. And, and for me, who wants to campaign here, didn't grow up here, but I'm, I'm trying to earn the respect of everybody. I want to show them that I'm going to campaign in the New Hampshire way. I'm going to get out there and meet as many people. I'm going to go uh, from the north uh, to the south, from the seacoast uh, to the cities. I'm going to campaign and work and try to earn people's respect by working as hard or harder than everyone. And one of the best things to know if you want to know the people is to connect with the people. So why should I spend time uh, in a hotel uh, when I can spend time like I did last night sitting with an incredible Martha who's an incredible state senator here and her husband Steve uh, eating some uh, rice cakes uh, and, and talking late into the night and wake up in the morning and sharing coffee with them and learning a lot from them along the way. On the campaign trail in Lebanon on Friday, you said, and I quote, there will be a woman on the ticket. That's pretty clear. Yes. So you're essentially saying if you're the nominee, you're going to have a woman running alongside you as vice president. Well, you see, again, I just mentioned Martha Hennessy, uh, state senator. You have all of these incredible women out there. I believe there should have been a woman president now have <laughs> worked really hard to accomplish that with all these incredible women leaders and with a with a president that's demeaned and degrade women the way they that they have I think it's a past time that America should see uh, women in the highest offices in the land you all have some great uh, leaders in the Senate uh, who are women and I think that it's time that we see a woman uh, somewhere on the ticket at the end of the day people are gonna make their decision not based on race or gender they're gonna make a decision on the passion the heart the content of our ideas the quality of our character and that's how we should make decisions. But I believe if you look at the field of great women leaders, from women governors we have, women senators we have, and others, um, that there, there should be a woman on this ticket somewhere. You're a vegan. Should yes. the next president be encouraging agricultural policies that direct people, perhaps gently, away from eating meat? I think that we are a nation that believes in freedom, and folks should put on their plate what they want to put on their plate. But look, we need to be having agriculture that's sustainable. I've done a lot with working with farmers uh, to stop a lot of this corporate consolidation in the agricultural sector that is cheating farmers out of their share of the consumer dollars, raising uh, the costs of their source products, and ultimately hurting the end consumer. We need to make sure that our policies reflect our values and our food system in many ways is broken and you now have countries taking advantage of us like this large international co uh, 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 corporation called Smithfield that's a Chinese now Chinese owned company that literally has their corporate consolidated farms in places like Duplin County uh, uh, North Carolina where they have these massive CAFOs concentrated animal feeding operations that are literally poisoning our rivers poisoning our soil and the way they're doing their farming the first entrepreneurs in America were farmers, but the independent family farmers are under assault right now. What I want to do is have policies that support our historic, our heritage, don't hurt the earth, and that give consumers choice and make sure farmers can earn a fair wage. Senator Cory Booker, thank we you. thank you for your time. Thank you. We'll very see much. you back here soon. I look forward to that. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or ones brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, make the season better. With New Hampshire Chronicle, get more out of winter.
Beto O'Rourke is finally in the race. He experienced a meteoric rise in 2018 in a Texas Senate race, and now we get to see him here in New Hampshire. John DeStaso is here to discuss. Thanks for joining us, John. Good morning, sir. So what do you think? Uh, Beto O'Rourke finally in. Does it matter that he does not have any semblance of a New Hampshire organization here yet? It doesn't matter yet because he's got the star power right now and all the buzz. And even with all the candidates that we've had here this, this weekend, today, and the next several days, um, he still kind of has that buzz looming over. But, of course, he's going to have to get an operation going here if he's going to be serious about New Hampshire. You know, I, I've written that inquiries have been made, uh, but at this point in time, you know, there, as far as I know, there have been no hirings yet. We might see that in the next, uh, within the next week or so, something, something more right, yeah. from the Beto people. Barack Obama had a lot of buzz, but he had been working for a long time towards this. There seems to be, and maybe I'm wrong here, maybe some ambivalence. He did his sort of driving around. Does it seem like he's going to be able to hit the ground running and be able to get that charisma to amp him up to the next level? I think it, once he gets past this initial, you know, ex excitement by by many, you know, he kind of had to get get that back after losing it following his following his loss. You know, uh, he's going to have to get more specific on the issues. Uh, you've just had candidates here on this program that have talked specifically about issues and their points of view. And I think uh, Beto O'Rourke, if there's one thing lacking so far, and I thought to a degree even in a Senate race, it's, it's the specificity of the issues. And you know as well as I, New Hampshire voters want to hear that. They're not going to be taken in for very long by, you know, sort of the aura around a certain candidate you know, due to popularity. Right. And certainly, most likely a contender here as we head into oh, yes. the no year ahead. Oh, yes. about that. Sure. He's right. definitely a contender. All right, John. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.